continue our journey today through Mark's gospel. And we're going to look at the Word of God and Mark's gospel and some other scriptures as well uh, to, to get some help from the scriptures about our emotional uh, help. Anybody interested in some emotional uh, help? All right, at least I got a few of you going to be with me uh, today. As we uh, go through this passage, we're, before we get to the passage, we're going we're gonna to look especially at Peter. Peter is a guy who has some serious, ramped up emotions and intensity going on uh, throughout his life as presented in Mark's gospel. In fact, if we go back to Mark chapter 8 and look at it on the screen, uh, Jesus is teaching, Mark is summarizing it, and he says, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And after three days rise again, he spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. We've looked at this verse several times as we are on our journey through the Gospel of Mark, but today I want to look at this and look at Peter from this emotional perspective. Uh, Peter has this intense and ramped up emotion so much so that he's recognized Jesus as the Messiah. You are the Christ. He's made that admission, uh, admission and profession of faith, but he's ready to rebuke Jesus here. And then we have uh, the passage continuing, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. So here, this first example of Peter's intense emotion is, is a man-centered, things of men, not a God-centered emotion. His emotion and his intellect and all of his being is, is not where it should be, but he is he's ramped up and rebuking Jesus. So this is just one of the examples of Peter's uh, emotion. We see it again in Mark chapter 10. Jesus is teaching about how we have to deny ourselves and give up everything. And Peter is just full of self-confidence. He is full of, uh, of, of just, yes, yes, yes. And Peter says to him, we have left everything to follow you. We're going to see, and we saw in the passage that was just read, that Peter uh, doesn't stay in this place. But he has this tendency to have extreme uh, emotions and emotions that are not God-honoring. So let's come to our passage today, and again, we're going to see Peter's emotion here. Jerry began with reading verse 26. Hopefully you have your Bibles open to Mark 14 and verse 26, which is kind of the connecting verse. Most Bibles put it with the previous unit, but some Bibles would put verse 26 with the next unit, and so it kind of could go either way. Now, for those of you that weren't here last week, what had happened where we are in Mark's gospel is Jesus has just celebrated the Passover with his disciples in this upper room. Uh, tradition says that that was actually Mark's, uh, Mark or Mark's father's home. The scriptures don't say that, but that's just the tradition of where that final meal, that Passover was spent. And then at the end of the Passover, Jesus does this amazing and outrageous and just incredible thing, and he reconstitutes the Passover into the Lord's Supper. And he celebrates the Lord's Supper with the disciples. And then we come to verse 26, which it says it would have been late in the evening. The Passover meal and this Lord's Supper would have gone till midnight or one o'clock in the morning. 
It was celebrated within the walls of Jerusalem, and then they would sing some psalms together. That's what verse 26 is referring to. When they had sung a hymn, or probably sung some of these psalms, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So what follows, beginning in verse 27, probably takes place either on the way to the Mount of Olives, just across the Kidron Valley outside of Jerusalem, or it may be on the Mount of Olives itself. So Jesus makes this proclamation in verse 27. Let's take a look at uh, verses 26 through uh, 27 and 28. He says, You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. So a few comments on these verses. First off, just an astonishing thing he says in verse 27. Again, lots of unbelievable, astonishing things happen. In what Jesus is saying in Mark's gospel, and this is one of them, he has just spent three years with these guys training them, teaching them. We are very close to Jesus' death. He has just celebrated this this Passover and reconstituted the Passover into the Lord's Supper. Just incredible events. And the next thing he says, after they've traveled outside, after they've worshiped together, after they've sung these psalms, you will all fall away. And he cites Zechariah 13.7. So not only is Jesus making this prediction, this prophetic statement, in verse 27, but it, it goes way back. For centuries, this, this prophetic word has, has predicted this event. I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Striking the shepherd, referring to Jesus, the, the good shepherd who's, who's about to die on the cross. Jesus is tying all of these things together and declaring that his followers are going to fall away from him at the moment of the cross. It is a striking thing. There is good news in this passage, and I want us to see it. Look at verse 28. He says, But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. So there's this prophecy, both ancient in the Old Testament and right now from Jesus, that they're going to fall. But there is good news, and that is that Jesus is going to be raised from the dead, and he's going to go ahead of you, going ahead of you apostles, those who have fallen. Implication is there's going to be restoration, there's going to be grace, there's going to be forgiveness. And he, notice he says, I will see you in Galilee, not in Jerusalem, where the people are expecting the Messiah to reign and rule. So there's probably even a theological statement, and he's saying where I'm going to meet you. I'm going to meet you in Galilee, in the countryside, not in Jerusalem. I am not a political Messiah. I'm not coming to reign and rule now, but I will see you. So this verse is kind of missed often as we go through this passage, but it's so important because we see the grace of God and the forgiveness there that even though his disciples fall, even though that we fall, even though we might outright deny Christ what we're going to see here, that there is redemption and forgiveness and grace. Is that good news? I mean, it is really good news. Now, if you are like Peter and kind of like me, uh, they don't focus on that verse in this passage. They don't focus on the forgiveness, on the hope of the resurrection. They focus on this prophecy about them falling away, the negative part. It's true, but that's all that they're thinking about. 
And some of us are like that. We, we hear uh, something good news, we hear some bad news, and all we really hear is the bad news. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I know some of you are, are, are like that. I'm kind of like that. And so, so, let's, let's, so this is verses, we've looked at verses 26 through uh, 28. Look at Peter's response in verse 29. Peter declares, here's this emotion. Here's this, this, this guy who just, you know, is just ready to go. Peter declares, even if all fall away, I will not. I will not. He is, he is determined. He is going against Christ. He's going against Old Testament prophecy. He's going against what Jesus has just said. And he is all in. I am not going to fall. All of the rest of them, they might. Those other 11, they might. But I am not going to fall. Matthew Henry writes this, he says, it is bred in the bone with us to think well of ourselves and trust our own hearts. We sin in a variety of ways, and one of the ways that we sin is we often think of ourselves too highly, too confidently. We can handle this. I got this. This isn't going to be, this isn't going to happen to me. And this is exactly where Peter is here. Again, his emotion is just intense, His determination is intense, and he is going against Old Testament prophecy, going against Jesus' predictive prophecy and prophetic word, and even if all fall, I am not going to. Now, there is much for us to meditate on here, and it is that our hearts and our emotions are not often reliable. They are not often reliable and connected to reality. And what is important, not connected with the Lord and with the truths of God's word. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So our hearts are, not, uh, are, are sinful like Peter's. We may not have the same personality. We might not have the same intense emotion. But in various ways, we struggle with our emotions and with our hearts and responding to situations in ways that are godly, in ways that are appropriate. And so we have to be aware that our, that our own selves, that our own understanding, that our own hearts are often fallen. And we need the clarity of God's word. We need the clarity of another brother or sister in Christ who has God's word in their mind to help us to see rightly and to have emotions and to have responses in the right way, in a way that brings glory to God. So we've made it through uh, verse uh, 29. Let's come back to the passage here and look at verses 30 and 31. So Peter is just determined he's not going to fall away. He makes a statement. And verse 30, Jesus responds with, again, astonishing specificity and prediction. Prophetic prediction. Verse 30, I tell you the truth. Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself, you, Peter, you yourself, the other yous were plural, you yourself will disown me three times. Again, going back to the larger purpose of Mark, Mark is wanting us to see that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God, who can make precise, predictive, prophetic statements like this about the same day the Son of God can, Jesus, who's about to die on the cross. So he makes this prediction that Peter is going to deny Christ three times, but Peter is, is still in that same place. 
Verse 31, but Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And then this surprising comment from Mark that all the others said the same. They are in unity together. We are not going to fall away. We are going against Jesus' predictive prophecy. We are going against Old Testament prophecy. We are not going to fall away. Their emotions are not in line with Scripture and with God's will. So that's, that's what we have in this passage today. You guys with me so far? Still, still tracking? What I want to do in the remainder of our time, short message today, is I want to talk about how you and I can have godly emotions and to talk about emotion in light of Peter's emotion here in this passage. So I've got four points, mostly applying this passage now and speaking more broadly. So the first uh, point, um, we'll skip over that. First point that I have comes uh, similar to this. Uh, Alvin Plantica writes this, helping us get to our first point. He says, how should we think about human persons? What sorts of things fundamentally are they? What is it to be a human? What is it to be a human person? And how should we think about personhood? The first point to note is that on the Christian scheme of things, if we're thinking from a biblical worldview, from a Christian perspective, God is the premier person, the first and chief exemplar of personhood. And the properties most important for an understanding of our personhood are properties we share with him. So our model, if we want to be Christ-like, if we want to be godly, we want to have emotions that are uh, God-glorifying and in harmony with the truth of Scripture and God's will for our lives, our exemplar, our model for personhood, for, for who to be, is Jesus himself. He's saying God, and I'm saying, yes, God, but the second person of the Godhead, Jesus, is our model and example. So if we want to know what our emotions and what our persons should be like, we need to look with Christ. Pretty, pretty basic. You still with me? Okay. So this, this is pretty basic stuff. So I'm just saying that Christ is basically the Christian's model for emotional health. He is our model. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 It says, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory. Now this applies to every realm of life, not just our emotional selves, not just the emotional components of us, but that's what we're focusing on in this sermon. This passage is saying what we are about as human beings is being transformed into the likeness of Christ with an ever increasing glory degree of glory. So Christ is our model for emotional health. The authority for our emotional health, where we compile, how we figure out who we're supposed to be is the scriptures. We've looked at this in recent weeks, sola scriptura, the scripture alone. So the Christian's uh, authority for emotional health is the scripture. We know who Christ is and what his life is like and what his character is like and what his emotions are like from the word of God. So we need to be looking at the scriptures, and that's what we've been doing this morning, and we're going to continue. Uh, Sam R. Williams has written on this subject of the emotions, and he, he writes this. 
He says, one of the most popular and pernicious myths about emotions is that they are neither good nor bad. They just are. On this view, emotional experience occurs within a morally neutral, value-free zone where concepts such as good and bad, right and wrong, godly and sinful are systematically avoided or at least minimized. So we probably don't understand the degree to which our secular culture influences us, but I want to suggest that many of us, you know, implicitly, we maybe haven't thought about this, but we just think, yeah, emotions aren't godly or ungodly, or emotions aren't right or wrong. But I want to suggest, as we look at the Scriptures and we look at Peter's life in Mark's Gospel, including today's passage, that we see there are emotions, of course, that are ungodly, that are wrong, that need to change. And the Scriptures help us uh, to see that. Peter's emotions, they're authentic, they're real. Our emotions are always connected to our heart, and so they're authentic, but they're not always God-honoring. Tracking with me? Okay. So again, uh, Sam R. Williams writes this. He says, It should be no surprise that when Scripture does not inform our thinking, especially about a matter such as emotion, which is so much a part of the nature of persons, something else will. Christian ministry cannot occur without a set of beliefs and concepts about persons. A psychology, if you will. Psychology, um, another word for that would be the, the study of souls, the care of souls. Uh, a psychology, if you will, which necessarily entails beliefs about emotion. So the model is Christ. The authority that we have is Scripture. I'm introducing what may be a new idea to you, that some of our emotions, although they're authentic and connected to our heart, they're wrong, they're, they're unbiblical, they're ungodly. And this is what we see in Peter's experience in this passage and a lot in the book of uh, the Gospel of Mark. So third uh, point this morning is that the Christian's pathway to spiritual health often begins with identifying the cause of emotions, the cause of my emotions, like regret and shame. Now, we're going to see regret and shame, Peter's emotions, change to a place of regret and shame as we jump ahead in today's passage. In fact, let's do that right now. Now, that's not where Peter has been. Peter is confident. He is, he is determined he seems to, to know what's going on, and I'm not going to fall away. It seems to be a good thing. But in reality, his self-confidence is a false confidence, and his bravado is not uh, an authentic bravado. It's not an emotion that is honoring to Christ. And so we see his emotions shift after Jesus' precise, predictive, prophetic word comes to, to pan out and comes to, to be fulfilled and that Old Testament passage comes to be fulfilled as well. Peter denies Christ twice later in the chapter, and then we pick it up in verse 70 on the screen here. It says, After a little while, those standing near, uh, the, near Peter, after he's denied Christ twice, said to Peter, Surely you are one of them. Surely, Peter, you are one of those believers, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Talk about a shift of emotion and perspective. 
He's gone from saying, Jesus, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. Mark has highlighted that in his gospel. He has gone from saying, I am not going to fall away. All these others, they might, uh, but I am not. Verse 29, even if all fall away, I will not. Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will never disown you. And now he is calling down curses on himself, like kind of swearing to pagan deities, if you will, to these other people that are around him, or Jewish curses, some kind of curses. He's saying, let me be cursed if I know who this guy is. I don't know this man you're talking about. His emotions, again, are intense here. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Peter weeps. Peter is broken. Peter finally gets to a place of repentance. His emotions all along this journey have been authentic, but his emotions up until this point have really been ungodly and dishonoring to the Lord and to the prophetic word of Scripture and to the verbal, oral, prophetic word of Jesus. So what has happened in Peter's life is that he has been on a pathway to spiritual health and he has identified regret and shame which our culture would say is, is, is not something that is, that is helpful or redemptive, but here Peter is feeling regretful and full of shame because there's a moral and spiritual component to our lives, and he should be feeling that way because he has gone against Christ and his word and his promise and his prophecy, and so he has broke down and he has wept. And so his emotions, his emotion now of sadness and sorrow and the regret And the shame that he has felt has brought him to a place of repentance. And again, I want to emphasize this verse in the passage that Jesus knows all of this was going to happen. And let's think about this in our own lives as as you look over your life, maybe the last year or your entire life, and just the emotions of your ups and downs, where you have been close to the Lord, where you've been far away from the Lord, where you have been rebellious, Jesus knew all of this was going to happen. He prophesied it. And in spite of their failure and their fallings and these, I mean, this is not a casual denial of Christ. Is this a casual denial of Christ, church? I mean, this is, this is about as emphatic as it gets. And yet, and yet Peter was welcomed at the Lord's Supper table. Peter was there at the Passover meal. Peter was told, I'm going to go ahead of you into Galilee. So I'm thinking this is all coming back to Peter's mind now when he breaks down and weeps. And this regret and this shame is not a place where he wants to stay, but it's something that leads him to repent and to come back and to have emotions and to have a spirit and to have an intellect and have a mind and have a heart that is loving God with everything that he has. So the Christian's pathway to spiritual health begins with identifying the cause of ungodly emotions. Peter's emotions here involve his, you know, his ungodly emotions involve his bravado and his, I can handle this and I can do this without Christ. And his emotion of shame and regret and crying has brought him to a place of humility and dependence upon the Lord. Just a couple more things uh, today to help us as, 
as what I, I hope we're doing in part today is, is we're helping build a theology of, of emotions, if you will, a psychology or a theology of emotions from the scriptures. So fourth point this morning is that the Christian's deliverance from ungodly emotions involves lament, involves going before God and, and letting him know all of our feelings and where we are. And no matter where we are, and we saw Peter doing that finally, breaking down. Well, we see Peter doing that constantly, whether his emotions are, are ungodly or godly. He is, he is right. Uh, he's all out there in front of the Lord. And we need to do that as well in prayer. And the Psalms are uh, the, one of the books of the Bible that God has given us that we can make our own prayers and enter into the various emotions that are present in the psalmist, and they can become our own. And we can cry out to God and have our ungodly emotions transformed into godly emotions. Psalm 56 would be one example of this, uh, a psalm of David. And David has got enemies coming at him, the context here of, of, of all sorts of places. And, and he is broken, and he is depressed, and he is discouraged. And he cries out to God. He laments in Psalm 56, and he says, Thou hast taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in thy bottle. God, you have taken my tears and put them in your bottle or in your wineskin. This, this helps the readers see the kind of intimacy between the psalmist and his emotions and the covenant-keeping God of Israel. He has, he has not only been there through David's depression and discouragement and tears, but there's this imagery that God has collected each of David's tears uh, in a bottle or in a wineskin. He has them. This is the kind of intimate relationship that they have, and David is crying out. And so so you and I, for example, can use Psalm 56 and pray that God would give us a heart like David's and that we would have this kind of intimacy when we are struggling, when we are depressed and discouraged. So there's a question here. Are they not in thy book? David is, in a sense, preaching to himself his tears, his sufferings, his depression, his discouragement. God has kept them in, in, a, in his own bottle. He has collected them, and he has written them down in a book. You know me, God. And we have spent this time together. He's pouring out his emotions. (laughs) Okay. So continuing on in Psalm 56, uh, David is is crying out uh, to the Lord. And he says, um, then my enemies will turn back. The, the, the idea of the fear of man and these people who don't like me or who put me down or who are physically going to attack me, uh, they have been controlling his heart and his life and his emotions. So, so David is praying and he's longing for his emotions to shift. And, and he's kind of preaching and praying to himself that my enemies are, are, are going to turn back. In the day when I call, as I pray this prayer, as I am intimate with my God, this I know, that God is for me. I shall not be afraid. What can these enemies, what can man do to me? He can do nothing when I am close to God. Well, he might kill me, but then I'm going to go right into God's presence. In other words, David has nothing to fear whatsoever. I have brought this psalm up today because it's just one of many examples of a place where the Scripture shows a believer who is in one place emotionally, spiritually, 
and he needs to get to another place emotionally and spiritually. And, and prayer and being with the Lord is one of the primary ways that we do that in lamenting and crying out to God with our emotions, with our tears, with our struggles, with our ungodly emotions. Finally, uh, last thing I want to say today, did I say four points? I have five points uh, this morning. Um, that's better than skipping them. You like serious note takers uh, don't like it when I don't finish one. So we got one, one more here. Point five, the Christian's emotional health certainly includes compassion. I mean, this sermon could go on and on talking about emotion, but I want to just end it simply with one observation. And that is, if we look at the Gospels, if we look at Jesus' life, if we look at the person of Jesus, and we think about what is the dominant or primary emotion that we see in Jesus' life, that primary emotion, I want to suggest, is compassion. Compassion for others. So the thing I want to leave us with today at the end of the sermon is if we need a target, okay, so today you might be thinking, I've learned I, there are such things as ungodly emotions and godly emotions, and there's a pathway and a journey to get from there to here. But what does it actually look like to have godly emotions? One answer to that is that increasingly, as we are conformed to the image of Christ, our emotions increasingly are emotions of compassion for other human beings. Compassion. We see this in Jesus. We could look at many, many examples of it, but let's just look at one of them back in Mark chapter 8. He says, Jesus says this, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way. They're the long journey ahead of them because some of them have come a long distance. I have compassion for these people. And we see this throughout the Gospels. We see this at the very heart of the Gospel itself. Jesus' death and resurrection is all a ministry of reconciliation. And you can make an argument that this is flowing out of the love of God, out of the compassionate heart of Jesus, why he is going to the cross for our sake. We'll close this morning with a word from B.B. Uh, Warfield, about compassion, he writes this. He says, The emotion which we should naturally expect to find most frequently attributed to that Jesus whose whole life was a mission of mercy and whose ministry was so marked by deeds of beneficence that it was summed up in the memory of his followers as a going through the land doing good. That's a summary of what he did. It's no doubt compassion. In point of fact, this is the emotion which is most frequently attributed to Christ. And it is the motion I want to leave us with this morning and pray that God would increasingly shape our emotions so that our emotions are godly and that we would increasingly be individuals and be a church that is known for people who are, as people who are compassionate. Let's bow our heads together and pray for the Lord to apply his word to our lives. Father, again, we are thankful for the word of God. We are thankful for the grace and the mercy that is easily missed in today's passage as we talk about roosters and crowing and denials and, and could spend lots of time talking about that, especially when we compare it to the other gospel passages. But Lord, we pray today that we would see the grace and mercy of God that in spite of Peter's failings, in spite of our failings, he is going to be risen and waiting for us in Galilee. That God forgives us, that he is 
He is gracious and wants us, no matter where we are, no matter how angry or depressed or discouraged or whatever kind of ungodly emotions, anger, rage, revenge, whatever kind of emotions you might be experiencing in life, in this season of your life, that God is gracious and wants to help us change. Lord, help us to change, and we pray that we would, again, be a church full of compassionate individuals. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.